well and Jesus asked her for a drink and she um, remarked about that thought that was a bit unusual and that gives Jesus his opening so would somebody read John chapter 4 verses 10 to 14 Jesus answered and said to her if you knew the gift of God who is it who says to you give me a drink you would have asked him and he would have given you the living water the woman said to him Sir, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where then do you get the living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us this well, and drank from it himself, as well as his sons and his livestock? Jesus answered and said to her, Whoever drinks of this water will thirst again, but whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him will never thirst. But the water that I shall give him will become in him a fountain of water springing up into everlasting life. It would probably be helpful if someone to come on up to the front. There's a whole front row here, and there's yeah. a few isolated places. We can see them. Uh, yeah, there's, so there's plenty of places on up, and save some back spots for people who come in really late and so forth. So anybody who's... We've got one seat up here. <coughs> Two seats. Two seats. We've even got a few seats by people who don't bite. <laughs> for those who prefer that. <coughs> Well, so in 410, Jesus says, uh, you know, she said, you know, why are you asking me for a drink? And Jesus said, if you knew the gift of God and who it is who says to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. He says, you're on the brink of the greatest of possibilities, but you don't even realize it. Why, I, you, why if you knew who I was, and I could give you living water. Now, I'm not sure she would have known exactly what he meant by living water. I'm not even sure what she would have thought by living water. But living water would be like running water, perhaps, to her at first. So maybe she's saying, he's saying, I'll give you a spring of water to, in her mouth. Well, she says, you don't have anything to draw with. The well's deep. You're not greater than our father Jacob that gave us this well, are you? Uh, the, the Samaritans were big on claiming Jacob as their father. And so, you know, who do you think you are? <laughs> you know, you think you're better than he is? And Jesus says, well, look, everyone who drinks of this water, the water of the well, will thirst again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him shall never thirst but the water that I will give him will become in him a well of water springing up to eternal life. Jesus is describing for her the advantages of the living water that he is offering. He said, now, you know, here's the thing. What happens when you drink real water? Yeah, it doesn't last. You get thirsty again. Isn't that true? Is there any single worldly joy that gives lasting satisfaction? You ever found anything that just really, truly, fully, and ultimately satisfies you? And you really feel like you just don't need anything else? I mean, I don't think there is anything like that. You know, anything in this life is ultimately, it leaves us with that nagging hunger for more. But the life that Jesus offers is water that, that always satisfies. 
You know, this is not stagnant water. This is this gushing spring that, that flows to eternal life. That's what Jesus is offering. Wow. And all this because he asked her for a drink of water. I mean, do you see how quick Jesus is to change the subject, to kind of veer it off in a spiritual direction, kind of takes up on the water idea, you know, and he turns it to a discussion of the water of life that she truly needs? Really encouraging. Comments and questions through verse 14. Fifteen to nineteen. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so I will not thirst, nor come over with this deal to draw. And he said to her, Go call your husband and come here. The woman answered and said, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You have correctly said, I have no husband. But you have five husbands, and the one you have now have is not your husband. This you have said truly. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our Father worship in this mountain. Okay, good. That's up. So, she, she kind of likes the idea. You know, she says, uh, Sir, give me this water. Then she explains why she wants it. So I will not be thirsty nor come all the way here to draw. <laughs> Jesus is offering her eternal life and she thinks he's giving her indoor plumbing. You know, she likes this idea. You know? But she asked for it, even though she doesn't understand it. So Jesus does something next that on the surface doesn't look like it really makes sense. What does he say to her? Go call your husband. Yeah, go call your husband and uh, come here. It's like, she says, I'll, I'll take some of that water and Jesus says, go get your husband. That's a little disconcerting on the surface, even more so when we later find out Jesus knew she wasn't married. She was just living with some guy. So that seems like an odd thing for Jesus to ask. And you're sort of scratching your head and wondering, what's the deal with that? Well, I think the deal with that is purposeful. If she asks for water, think about it. What's step one? She's got to be thirsty. Exactly. He's got to make her thirsty. He's got to convict her of her sin. She's got, anybody has to realize their loss before they can be saved. So he's showing her her sin. Now, it's kind of a step-by-step -step process, but this is the first step toward granting her request. He asks her to bring her husband to bring her to say what she says. And what she says in Greek is three words. In English, it's four. What does she say? I have no husband. You know, she's been a pretty talkative person up till now. <laughs> Suddenly, she's uh, very uh, succinct. Why? What? Yeah, it's a little personal. I think she's really not wanting to go there. You know, this is kind of a dangerous subject, and she's hoping to avoid any further questioning about this. I have no husband. Jesus says, it literally... <coughs> 
husband you do not have, you've said correctly. He starts with the word she ended with. She said, I have no husband. He said, yeah, husband, you're right. <laughs> you don't have a husband. Now Jesus exposes her life. This is a devastating response. He says, the truth is you had five husbands and you're just shacked up with the guy you're living with now. Think about what an embarrassing and, and really painful thing this must be for her. Her life has been a series of false beginnings and shattered hopes. Five husbands! Sounds modern, but can you imagine living with a sixth man? You know, Jesus is bringing her to see her need for living water. Her life's a mess. It's not only immoral, it's just all confused. She needs some of that living water. But of course, how did Jesus know all about her marital past? It's kind of like what Jesus did with Nathaniel. He, she, he told him things about himself that he couldn't possibly have known. And so what does she say? You're a prophet. Well, that's, that's progress. She's starting to get the right idea. Comments or questions through 19. All right, he's a prophet, 20 to 26. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming, and is now here, when your true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to Him, I know that Messiah is coming, He who is called Christ. When He comes, He will tell us all things. Jesus <coughs> said to her, I who speak to you am He. Well, what would you do if you had a prophet there? What would she do? That may be. It may be she's still trying to sidetrack the conversation from this uh, marriage issue. Might, uh, you know, when things get uncomfortably personal, is it easier to argue some religious question? That, that may be the case. Um, but would we not maybe do the same thing too? Can you imagine having a prophet? Is there a question you'd like to ask? <laughs> what one does she ask? Yeah, where do you worship? Now, see, the Samaritans, they were, their religion was quite not the same as the Jewish religion, and their holy place was Mount Gerizim. Remember the special thing that always happened on Mount Gerizim, according to the law? They read the blessings. They read the blessings on Mount Gerizim. If you ever forget whether it's Gerizim or Ebal that they read the blessings on, just remember that the Samaritans wouldn't have worshipped on the mountain where they read the curses, you know. So that kind of has always helped me uh, keep that in my mind. The Jews, of course, worshipped as God intended at the temple in Jerusalem. And so she said, what about that? You know, where should we really worship? Well, Jesus says, you know, an hour is coming 
when it's not going to matter anymore, when it's going to be kind of irrelevant where you worship. Because it's going to, place is, is, is going to be kind of obsolete. Anywhere that the Lord is will be okay. But what does he say on the question of the right place to worship right there? <coughs> Jerusalem. He says, you worship what you do not know. We worship what we know for salvation is from the Jews. He says, the Jews are right. Now, it doesn't really matter much anymore because of the change that's taking place. But as far as the question is concerned, Jesus makes no concession to the Jewish position. He's uncompromising. He will not sacrifice truth. He just says, the salvation of the Jews. And the right place to worship is in Jerusalem. The Jews are right. I appreciate his candor in that. But again, he comes back to the fact, but an hour is coming when you're going to need to worship in spirit and truth according to the nature of God, wherever that might be. And that's, of course, always the, the proper worship, is the worship that corresponds to the Lord. He's spirit, so we should worship in spirit and truth. And she says in verse 25, the woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming. He was called Christ. When that one comes, he will declare all things to us. Jesus said to her, I who am speaking. I who speak to you. Am he. This is the only time that you really see Jesus saying it like that. He doesn't normally admit in so many words to being the Messiah. I think he does this here because he's in Samaria. Well, while their ideas of the Messiah were inadequate, they did not include those false, perverted, political, military ideas of the Messiah like the Jews did. And so he wasn't going to give her any misconceptions by admitting that. It might not have been a complete enough picture. Uh, so, comments or questions through verse 26. No. I appreciate how he both corrects a problem, corrects a, you know, she said something that was false, and he corrects it, but really he gets to the main point. And when we're, kind of, we're answering objections, we need to do both things. You know, you can't just let something that's false just be said and, you know, kind of let it stand, but, you know, there are times we need to get to a, the heart of the matter, and it may be something different than what, you know, what we're talking about instead. Amen. The, the way this verse, verse 24, is often looked at, Spirit and truth is the application of worshiping with the right heart and also according to the patterns we see in the New Testament. Do you think that's a valid way of looking at the intent of what Jesus said? I don't know. I, 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 I can preach it either way. <laughs> <laughs> which, which way would you like? Roger. What do you think of me? I don't know. I mean, I'm fine with what he said, although he may not have, you know, he may have just been throwing that out. I'm fine with the idea that our worship must be, you know, spiritual. It must be with the right spirit, akin to the Lord, and it must be in truth. It must be according to God's way. That's fine with me. That, that may, others think that it means more like the spiritual reality as opposed to the carnal shadow of the Old Testament. But it's probably easier to explain just taking spirit and truth individually and saying our worship has to have the right spirit and has to be according to the pattern. So I'm fine with that idea. Yes. How would it contrast then to worshiping on this mountain or worshiping in this mountain? Is it more where you worship, it's going to be more inside your, in your heart than it is where well, you Well, it's go. that with Jesus, place is loosed. It doesn't make any difference. It, all that matters then 
is that it be proper worship in the proper spirit. You know, where does it matter? I mean, before, there was so much emphasis on the place where God would cause his name to dwell. They had to worship in Jerusalem. And after Jerusalem became the, the center of the, the worship, worship even of God in the high places was wrong. You know, now before that, no. But after he chose Jerusalem, it was. And there's, there's some passages in the Old Testament that are remarkable in predicting that. Like in Malachi chapter 1 and verse 11, where he says, For from the rising of the sun, even to its setting, my name will be great among the nations, and in every place incense is going to be offered to my name, and a grain offering that is pure. For my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. That was really radical teaching in that day, that in every place they would worship properly. And uh, also in uh, Zephaniah 2.11, the Lord will be terrifying to them, for he will starve all the gods of the earth and all the coastlands of the nations will bow down to him, everyone from his own place. Zephaniah 2.11. Both of those passages are significant and they're saying you'll be able to worship God from your own place. It won't have to be Jerusalem. So that's part of the shift that takes place. So I think the shift is just di unobligating place. Alan. Uh, what was the first reference? Uh, Malachi 1.11. John. Are the two spirits uh, the same word? I suspect they are. Somebody may have a Greek Bible or something. I have something written in my Bible. I don't know if it's a bomb or something, but uh, it says it's the second spirit is more the idea of mind. Anybody got the Greek? Which Okay. <coughs> it's three times used. We're talking about John 4.24 where he says God is spirit. Those who worship him must worship him in spirit and truth. Probably not the same case, but I'm suspecting it's the same word. Well, when J.D. figures it out, he'll let us know. If he figures it out. Alright. And other questions or comments we can't answer? You're good at asking uh, difficult questions. Anybody got an easy one? Strong said it's the same word. Strong said it's the same word, okay. Very good. Um, so, you know, now Jesus has come to say, I am the Messiah to you. Wow, this is, this is amazing. You know, who would have thought that we would have started out a few minutes before with asking for a drink of water, and we'd have ended up with him saying, I am the Messiah, and her believing it and going into town and saying, look, I saw somebody that you need to see. This is remarkable. All right, 27 to 30. And at this point, his disciples came, and they marveled that he talked with a woman. Yet no one said, What do you seek, or why are you talking with her? The woman then left her water pot, went her way into the city, and said to the men, Come see a man who told me all things that I, that I ever did. Could this be the Christ? Then they went out of the city and came to him. Did you say 38? To 30, you're good. So, the disciples come back, and uh, what shocks them? Talking to a woman. They don't say it, but you know, it's actually a Samaritan woman. So, but you know, they don't say anything. I mean, you wouldn't really say something critical to Jesus, but whoa. That wasn't what they expected to come back and see. She goes into the city, forgets her water pot. After all, she's got something more important 
than the bringing of water, she's going to bring men. And, and she does this well. She says, come see a man who told me all the things that I've ever done. This isn't the Christ, is it? You know, it's kind of how a woman would do that. Kind of piques their curiosity. She doesn't just say, this has got to be the Christ. I know it. You know, I dare you to prove me wrong. No, she's like, this couldn't be the Christ, could it? You know, kind of just drawing their curiosity and making them wonder. Think about the contrast between this woman and the disciples. Both of them go into the Samaritan village. They bring back very different stuff. What have the disciples brought back? Food. And she brings back people. She brings the people out. They, they went out of the city and were coming to him because of her words. Wow. She's an immoral mess. But she does a lot more good than the disciples who do it here. Isn't that amazing? Jesus sees potential. You know, would you have gone into that Samaritan village and seen that woman there drawing water and ever imagined that talking to her would lead to the conversion of the whole village? Comments and questions? Yes, Roger. Now, um, on that observation, I think it's interesting that a lot of times our new Christians do a better job at evangelizing than Christians who have been in the church for five or ten years. And I don't know, I feel like this woman just found out about Jesus and she's telling everybody about it. Disciples do not Jesus. They're not telling anybody about it. It's not we are. We often don't appreciate what we have very long. We only appreciate the newest blessings. Yeah, I think that's a good point. Very good. She had plenty of other disadvantages too. Uh, one of them would be she hardly knew anything about Jesus. Uh, she she pretty much only knows that he claims to be the Christ and he can do a miracle. And those are the exact two things that she says. <laughs> <laughs> You're right. Yeah. <laughs> She brought them to Jesus. She couldn't have done much else, could she? But that's all it took. We can't use the excuse of not knowing enough about the Bible for this week. Now what we know. Amen. Excellent point, Logan. I like how this story illustrates that we can't judge people's hearts for ourselves. That, you know, if, if it was one of us that saw the same woman, we probably would have said, we can't bother with her because she's a mess. Whereas Jesus talks to her anyways and she ends up converting. Yeah, she wouldn't be interested. No, he's talking to her. She's not going to listen. She's not good soil. You know, I mean, don't waste your time with her. Isn't that what we think? I, I've done that plenty of times. Roger. Yeah, we would have picked Nicodemus and not this woman. Yeah. Nicodemus did not very well. She did very well. Yeah, you're right. Yeah. And the fact that the disciples probably, if they'd been you know, with other Jews, maybe disciples of John, they would have been talking about how Jesus, he knew doing these things, he, they talked about the signs. John did doing miracles. You know? There were many, many other situations where I think they probably would love the phone. They would have been the first in line. Peter would have been the first in line of all 12 And yet, here in this place, in Samaria, Jesus, why are you talking to this person? Yeah, you're right. So sometimes we, it's not that we're just, you know, horrible people who never want to tell people about Christ, but in just certain areas, certain parts of our lives, certain people, certain you know, groups, we just feel like we're going to go in those places, we're silent. We get a little choosy about who we want to teach, don't we? Shane? You know, I think a lot of times we're so zealous when we first first gain the Lord because I think we really see who He is for the first time. We see who the Lord is and what He's done for And I really am convinced that if we just every day remind ourselves of who the Lord is, we're, we're going to maintain that zeal. But so many times our selfishness and our, our lives cloud that over. 
And I think a lot of times what we do is, is, is we don't see who the Lord is. We don't go back to that same foundation that started us and having such a strong faith. And then if we continue day by day to go back to who the Lord is and what He is and what He means to us, there's no way we, we're going to lose that view. As long as we don't let ourselves follow. Good point. Yes. Great. Yeah. I like the idea of how Jesus, uh, how the woman brings them to Jesus. You know, she didn't just talk to Jesus for a long time and get all the information that she needed to, and they go like preach it to people. She brought them to Jesus. I think many times we, you know, uh, while certainly we need to be studying God's word and preparing ourselves to evangelize, we need to bring people to God's word uh, and not just bring the word to them. Excellent point. That's exactly right. We can bring them to the word and at least let us read it together and let them see what Jesus is saying. Part of that is connection with what you said. We need to do that, spread it, and to bring God's word to them. But part of us, we don't do it because Satan's telling us that we're, we're afraid what people are going to think. <coughs> Who cares what they're going to think about us? We're going to do what Christ said. You're humiliated. Other thoughts? Okay. Uh, 31 to 38. In the meantime, his disciples urged him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food, <coughs> I have food to eat of which, of which you do not know. Therefore the disciples said to one another, Has anyone brought him anything to eat? And Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of him who sent me, and to, and to finish his work. Do, do you not say... There are still four months, four months, and then comes the harvest. Behold, I say to you, lift up your eyes and look at the fields, for for they are already white with harvest. And they, you said thirty-eight. Right. And he who reaps receives wages and gathers fruit for eternal life, that both that both he who sows and he who reaps may may rejoice together. For in this saying is true. For for in this saying is true. One sows and another one reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you have, for which you have not labored. Others have labored, and you have not, and you have entered into, the, into their labors. So they bring food and say, "Come on, eat." And what does he say? <coughs> I got food to eat. You don't even know about. So I brought him something to eat. <laughs> Who do you think they have in mind? That woman. He didn't eat food from that woman. She misunderstands the living water. They misunderstand the food. You know, Jesus says to them plainly, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. When they left, Jesus was tired and hungry and thirsty. He hadn't slept, he hadn't eaten, and he hasn't drunk, and they return, and he's energetic and fresh and vibrant. Because he is so enthused and so filled by doing the will of the Father. That's his joy. That's the strength of his life. That's what he cares about. That's his food. Wow. If we only could get a tenth of Jesus' passion and love for God. And he doesn't think about being tired or hungry or thirsty. There's the Samaritans coming out to hear the word of the gospel. He can show the Lord to them. 
Chris had a good suggestion. He said, you know, next time we do this, we ought to just fast for uh, these two days. And, uh, you know, just, just study. That'd be an interesting thought. When, you know, can you imagine us doing that? Ooh, wonder how much fewer people there'd be here. <laughs> you know, but, but, but really, I mean, think about it. What's more exciting? The Lord's will or food? Now, I mean, there been plenty of times in my life where, you know, food was more fun. But, but to Jesus, it wasn't like that. It, doing God's will, being involved in this work and mission, that filled him up. That gave him energy and strength. I just love that on Jesus' part. And he goes on to say, you know, you got this saying that, you know, plant the seed, four months later you get the harvest. He says, that's not the way it's working here. He says, look! The fields are white, the harvest already planted the seed in the morning, about noon. By afternoon, the harvest is already coming to, to, to uh, you know, ripe, being ripe and, and ready to, to gather. You know, in the spiritual world, the seed just grows and, and brings a harvest like that. Look at the people that are coming out. He says, it's, it's like one sows and another reaps. Wow, there's so much excitement in the spiritual Planting and harvesting. It's, 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 sometimes it's amazing. Sometimes it's like overnight. Sometimes people develop spiritually in ways that are just incredible. You just think, this can't be. How, how can God have changed somebody that quickly? Sometimes you reap harvests that you didn't plant. It's a wonderful thing. And that's what the, Jesus is so excited about right here. Comments and questions. Alan. What's the point of there you get four months? Well, I think that's just what the common thing was. You plant the seed, you wait four months, you get the harvest. Travis. Um, I think oftentimes we're kind of like the disciples in just going through the motions and doing the things that we only see example for and that we see that we must do, like church on Sundays and church on Wednesdays, when we should be more like Jesus. And in every situation, we can reap the fields of God. And we can serve him in every situation, as we see through the Bible, with people in jail, that not only good situations should be glorified God, but in every situation. For our lives are a tribute to God, not just a hobby. We must serve the Lord in all the things we do. Amen. Wes. Another thing society tells us to just exist and just go through the daily life as it is, you know? Um, just eat, sleep play a video game, do something else. I mean, honestly, I think some people really exist on that. And um, it's, it's interesting, he says in 35, look, I tell you, lift your eyes up and see the wilderness. The fields are white and harvest. I think sometimes we really just need to get out of our mode and get up and look around and see what there is around us and be goal-oriented in our life to get something done instead of just to do it. Amen. The thing I feel that has been said to me is what we've been saying all along to see and to walk as Jesus walked and to live for my potential and to go out into the field and harvest. And then by doing that, you see the blessings that come with that. And like you said, there's nothing that is more satisfying, there's nothing that's more fulfilling than to live as we are told to live. Amen. Roger. Yeah, I 
something that I hear a lot is that, you know, there's no opportunities. There's no opportunities. Nobody wants to hear the gospel. There's nobody to help, you know? I think Jesus makes the point here. The problem is not that there's not enough opportunities. The problem is there's not enough people to work on these opportunities. He says we need to learn to lift up our eyes and look and really see that there's so much stuff to do that it will take us, I mean, all of us will be working for time and time again. And I think we just need to open our eyes when we say, here, look at that. There's five or six billion people in the world. There's plenty of opportunities. Plenty of people to tell about Jesus. Michael. Yeah, I, I mean, just this, his saying, like, the fields are white with harvest. Yeah, I think a lot of times, even when we're looking for someone maybe to talk to, it's almost like, okay, there are all these people, and we're going to find that, you know, maybe like one person, it's almost like we would think there's this one grain of wheat or whatever, instead of the fields are white, you know, all around us, there are so many people that we could make an impact on, instead of that one we have to find. Yeah, you guys live in Atlanta. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's, isn't it amazing? And you're exactly right. That's what we think. Well, Samaritan woman, no, we can't talk to her. Nicodemus, no, we can't talk to him. This one, we can't talk to the. You know, why not? Doesn't everyone need to hear the gospel? Well, they wouldn't listen. But what if we knew they wouldn't? Isaiah knew they wouldn't. Jeremiah knew they wouldn't. Ezekiel knew they wouldn't because God told them they wouldn't and said, preach it anyway. If we knew they wouldn't, what should we do? Teach them the gospel. Now, we don't happen to have Jesus telling us they're not going to listen. And experience suggests they, that some of them will. But whether they do or not, teach them. That's our job. Patrick. Um, I, I really like what Roger said. You know, that this clearly displays that the problem is not the number of opportunities. You know, we almost like get it in our minds that the Bible, in every way, appeals to us today, except when it comes to talking about evangelism. We, we act like that day was, uh, like Jesus' day, was so much different that everyone was, listening, was willing to hear and all these things. What about the Pharisees? Do you think they listen very much? We act like, we act like they're so much different. And we forget the Bible applies to all times. We can't exalt ourselves in our own judgment saying, well, we think today is so much harder than that. It's not at all. It's really hard if you never present the gospel. Matt. I think Patrick's point is true, but I think we say the same thing for the 1950s or 60s. And you always think, man, people study the Bible and they're so much more moral then. And, you know, not much time has gone by. And, you know, we still use the same excuse with, you know, even a lesser time. Yeah, you're right. Bet. Evangelism means to declare or to proclaim the good news. That's all that word means. And that's pretty easy. Now, evangelism doesn't mean to convert. You're right. Same. I mean, what is this idea that it's only glorifying God if they're converted? That's, that's not the point. You're still glorifying God for what you're doing, whether they're converted or not. Amen. It's, it's still a glory for Lord that you're doing what He's asked you to do. Let's make sure nobody has an excuse. Let's make sure nobody can say, nobody tried to tell me. Very good. Good discussion, Michael. I'm thinking times like <coughs> and when he went to the Pharisees and other times, he may have gone through Samaria not just because, well, I'm I'm not gonna be like everybody else across the river. That, you know, there's no reason not to go through Samaria because these are people too. But because he knew he would find this book, and because he knew he would find that man, Pharisees. And how often we need a reason, we need to be able to, carry to be able to go see someone. We don't. 
we don't need to make a special trip to go encourage some of the elderly people or, or anything like that. If, if we're not in the area, it just seems like it doesn't get done. Jesus makes so many trips, it seems, just because he, he knew there was a need. What is that story they tell? Somebody may remember this. I don't remember who tells it or what. But about this lady that gets pulled over by the police. Remember that story? And I don't know, get started talking to him and says, I know why you pulled me over. Because I've been praying that God would send somebody I could talk to about the Lord today or something like that. You know, I remember how all that went. But I'll tell you, what if the Lord puts somebody in your path? What if the Lord, say, sticks you in a hospital? Or sticks you in some convalescent place? You know, what if he puts you in some town you don't really like? What if he puts you in a school of people that are really snobbish? You know, what if where the Lord puts you, right? And he's got a reason for that? I mean, why shouldn't we think, well, he stuck me in this hospital. There must be somebody here I need to, I need to talk about Christ to. Instead of thinking, well, if I ever get out of this hospital, then I'll start talking about the Lord. I mean, it's Paul, when they put him in prison, who does he evangelize then? Hey, the guards. You know, why not? That's, that's who was there. Other comments, questions, thoughts? Yeah. Like saying, um, people are like, why isn't the gospel being spread like it should these days? No, why? Because people won't stop playing with their video games and worldly things. That they're only put that away and get out, out, out of their house and spread the word. Amen. Amen. So, let's see what happens. 39 to 42. Many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me <coughs> all that I ever did. So the Samaritans came to him and they asked him to stay with them. And he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, it is no longer because of what you said that we believe, but we have heard for ourselves. And we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. So, many of the Samaritans believed because the woman said, he told me all the things I've done. You know, you think about it. The Jews, they rejected the testimony of the scriptures, of John the Baptist, of the miracles of Jesus, the teaching of Jesus, and the Samaritans believe because this woman says, he told me everything I've ever done. It's amazing, the receptiveness that they have. You know, she's got all sorts of reasons not to talk about it. I mean, after all, who's going to listen to her? Look at her past. You ever thought that? I can't talk to those people. They all know me. They know how bad I've been. She didn't let that stop her, did she? And they didn't let that stop them. So, you know, they believe because of that, but many more believe, verse 41, because of his word. And, and that's what we need. They, they say, you know, now it's not because of her that we believe. Now it's, we've heard for ourselves. And we know that this one is indeed the Savior of the world. We've got to come to have first-hand acquaintance with Jesus and not just hear about it from other people. It's one of the things that I think we have to really work on when we're young. You know, sometimes, young people, it's like, why do you believe? Well, Mom says so. Dad says so. That's what my parents always tell me. It's what they say down at church. They always say it must be right. 
And we don't really learn to know Jesus for ourselves. We just accept it on the word of somebody else, some authority figure in our life. That's not the same. That, that's the beginning. It was the beginning for them. They started with believing because of what she said, but so much better when they came to hear him for themselves and they believed because of what he said. So they come to know he is the Savior of the world. Just an amazing, amazing thing. Comments and questions through verse uh, 42. It almost sounds like they're trying to take away the credit from the woman. Well, I think that it's just so much better when it comes from Jesus directly. That it's a, you know, it's like, you know, what about, here's something I see sometimes. Maybe this would be a good application. One or two of you, at least, maybe more in here, I've talked to about this too. So you're going to recognize it. But i talked to several people about this. And you, maybe you're like this. Are you ever the kind of person who you really like? to go to Bible studies. You like to have phone studies. You like to be talking to people who tell you about the Lord and about the Word, but you never like to read it for yourself. You know, that is great that people like to go to studies and they like to talk, study on the phone. They like to, but, but what, what does it say about us if we only want to be in social settings listening but we never want to hear it for ourselves by reading it. Isn't there a problem with that? Like we only want to hear about Jesus, we don't really want to hear it from Jesus. And we need these kind of things. But we're never going to be a strong Christian if we don't actually study for ourselves and come to know the Lord because of our acquaintance with Him. If it's always secondhand, it's never quite as strong. Better. Another good test maybe, to see where our faith is, whether it's really within ourselves or within the people around us, is what we do, what's our first reaction when our faith is challenged? I know very often my first reaction is to find somebody who, you know, I look up to or who's authority here, like you're talking about, have them tell me, no, it's not that way. And that's a, a way that I, I cheat myself out of learning and growing. And it's not just about cheating myself out of growing, though, it's about making sure those things are part and when we're always needing someone else to reassure us that we have no faith. Good point. Shane? You know, I think uh, for those of us that have been really low, that have really have come from really difficult backgrounds or whatever, who have who've done I think, a lot of things wrong, I know people have, have come from those similar situations and, and they do have the idea that I don't know how I can teach when people know what I've done. And I think the encouraging thing about that is that the people that have been the farthest down have the farthest to go. They have the higher to go. They, those are the people that I see depend upon more, much the Lord much more than those that I feel like they're good enough. Uh, it makes us depend upon the Lord more. I don't know, it just makes me, it makes me wonder if, if, if we all didn't see ourselves as, I don't know why I'm being chosen to teach or preach this or say these things, I think it would mean a lot more too. Probably so great. Uh, I was just thinking about how um, you know it was socially unacceptable, first of all, for Jesus to talk to the Samaritan woman. Now he's staying with the Samaritans for uh, I think it was two days. Yeah. I was just thinking, um, you know, what what his disciples would have been thinking at this point. Um, Brigham. 
call him Savior of the world, and I think a little bit more insightful of what they call Jesus maybe than, than what we've heard before. It's not just King of Israel now, it's the Savior of the world. And uh, they really recognize Jesus with the scope that he himself is proclaiming that. Exactly. Tim. I think mean, yeah, we used it before. We compare this to Nicodemus. You compare it to there's the people who are you know, worldly wisdom and fool themselves and then they refuse the gospel. And then you find the simple people and the simple women and they accept the gospel. It's this exciting, it's good, knowledgeable, of believing or proclaiming. And then you have this comment that the disciples said, which which wasn't for the end their perspective. It must seems kind of dopey about like where what food, who fed Jesus, and like they don't get it. And maybe we even remember that. That's where these Samaritans are going to be soon too. I mean, they're excited and they're growing now, but they're you know this Samaritan woman doesn't have it all figured out, and she's going to be saying things that don't make sense. Just like disciples say all these things and say, "Oh, it looks so silly and foolish." But if we're appealing to people that are you know just a simple, regular people, um, we might accept it quickly, but we need to remember to stay on it continually for a life. Good. Other thoughts? Yes. I think that maybe the Samaritan woman, in comparison to Nicodemus, maybe she had a need. Like, she was in all this sin, and she needed Jesus. Whereas Nicodemus, he had all these earthly things. He didn't need Jesus. <clears throat> yeah, I think so. I think, you know, when you realize that you need him, it changes your whole attitude. We all need him, obviously, but some don't see it. Jesus moves on. 43 to 45. After the two days, he went forth from there to Galilee. For Jesus himself testified that a prophet has no honor in his own country. So when he came to Galilee, the Galileans received him, having seen all the things that he did in Jerusalem at the beast. For they themselves also went to the beast. Alright, so he goes up to Galilee, 44 and 45 will make you scratch your head for a good while. Jesus himself testified that a prophet has no honor in his own country. So when he came to Galilee, the Galileans received him, having seen all the things that he did in Jerusalem at the feast, for they themselves also went to the feast. Now, um, where would you assume his own country was? Galilee. Galilee? So what, how would you expect the Galileans to treat him? No honor. No honor. How do the Galileans treat him? They receive him. So it's like, wow, how do, you, how do you explain that? Well, some people would say his own country is in Galilee. Some people would say, well, the Samaritans still received him better than the Galileans. I wonder if the answer is not this. And this will depend on seeing some more things. And some of you already haven't completely, I don't think, uh, are on my wavelength with this. But it looks to me like that in John, this faith based on miracles is not considered adequate. And that's what the Galileans are seeing. Jesus doesn't do a miracle in Samaria. And they believe because of his word. But these Galileans, instead of listening to his word, they saw the miracles he did in Jerusalem. Now look at 48. Jesus said to, to him, unless you people see signs and wonders, you simply will not believe. You know, and look at 
A large, a large crowd followed him because they saw the signs which he was performing on those who were sick. The, the, the faith that just sees a miracle is, is less adequate. And so I'm wondering if he's not saying that a prophet uh, doesn't have honor in his own country. Go to Galilee. And unlike the Samaritans who believe in his word, the Galileans only receive him because they saw those miracles he did. And so he doesn't have the real honor like he had in Samaria. That's my explanation. You can take it or leave it. Yeah, J.D. Uh, and it wasn't a sign per se to work with Samaria, but he did prophesy and tell her things he wouldn't have known from a miraculous sense. That's true, but that's not why they come ultimately to believe. They believe because of his word. Right. Also, the Samaritans don't receive him. When he's leaving, they impose him on him to stay, whereas the Galileans that they receive him. Uh, that, that's a mistake, I think. Good point. Is it recorded in the other Gospels? I mean, that concept is... The concept is this is event. Not the same event? It? Okay. Yeah, it's not in this event. If it's related to that at all? Yeah, I don't think so. Alan? I think we talked about this earlier, but what, what would you give an example of a sign-based faith for today? Uh, somebody who... Unless they see God doing specific things for them, they won't believe. So if they have some disappointment or setback, or things don't go the way they want, or they have a prayer that's not answered, they don't believe. They only believe when they can actually see God doing different things. So they don't believe based on his word. They just believe based upon, well, God did this for me today, therefore I believe. Mason? You do maybe a parallel with people that are attracted to the friendliness of people in the congregation or the, the hospitality of the members or something like that and and they, they say things like, this is the best church I've ever been a part of. And they're, they're clearly not distinguishing between truth and error. It's just about what I see, what I get as a result of where I'm So it's just belief based upon what Jesus can do for me. Yeah. yeah I mean, you see that all the time. You see that all the time. I mean, churches today all talk about is well, Jesus can cure your cancer. Jesus can do this, and Jesus can do that, and people love that. And when does it when it happen? I mean, that happens all the time in the faces. I mean, the faith is not what happens. So, I mean, Amen. Yes, sir. That's something to do with the fact that um, the Samaritans they they were asking him to stay with it, with them, and he wanted they wanted him there, and. It seems, to, uh, it seems to say that the Galileans, they were just happy to be at the feast, or not just happy, but they were at the feast, and they saw those signs, and then they received it. Uh, could it be a difference there? The fact that they were kind of welcoming the Samaritans were trying to draw him in, whereas the Galileans just kind of saw it, they never received it anymore. Maybe. Bigger. Also, I think there's an increase in faith, not maybe getting ahead of the Galilean guy coming up, but there's an increase in faith in both Samaritans and this Galilean guy. The increase for Samaritans is we believe, first of all, based on testimony, and then because we heard Jesus' words, we increase our faith. So both times, there's, there's the faith is based upon not, nothing that they've seen, but words. Uh, whereas the Galileans have faith in the beginning because they saw the signs, and then the Galilean man, after he sees... The, the result of the miracle of Jesus does for his son. It says for the second time that he believed, and I think that for me that his faith has increased. Also, the increase of faith uh, is, is based upon different things in the implication. Okay. Yeah. Wouldn't you say it's fair to say that a, a 
biblical faith is a kind of character more so than just a knowing of certain facts. Even the demons believe and tremble. When he says, if you have faith, whatever you ask in my name, you'll receive. He's not saying, well, if you just believe hard enough, you can make anything you want happen. He's saying, if you are a person of faith and you trust the Lord and you, know, you obey the Lord and you want the things the Lord wants and you're asking for things the Lord wants as well, you can ask for anything. And it's not just the idea of, you know, well, how much do I believe in this? It's about, how do I see myself in reference to these things I believe in? Um, I'm willing to see more. Good point. Jake. Uh, you point out two of the differences between the Samaritans and the others. Verse 39, they believe because the woman's testimony reminds me of what Jesus said to Thomas, you know, blessed are those who have not seen and believe. And that's them. I mean, they didn't they just believe because of the testimony. Yeah, good point. All right, look at this next story, 46 to 54. city? Cana. Where was the first Galilean miracle? <laughs> Cana. So we've come from Cana to Cana. And uh, the uh, Galilean miracles are numbered for our convenience. This is number two in Galilee because he did all those down in Jerusalem. What's the situation here? You've got a royal official who's got a sick son. How sick is the son? Point of death. He's about to die. So the official comes and begs Jesus to heal his son. Jesus said, oh, you won't believe unless you see signs and wonders. Jesus is dissatisfied with a faith that depends on constant wonders. He wants people to believe in him because of who he is and what he says, not just because he can do something for them all the time. You know, when you only want Jesus, when he's doing something you can see that you think is helping you, you don't really want him for who he is. So Jesus didn't, he rejected that. But the royal official pleads, come down before my child dies. And what does Jesus do? By, but, but where? He doesn't go down. He just says, okay, your son's living. That's all he does. He doesn't go. He just heals from a distance. Probably 20 miles from Canaan to Capernaum, if I remember correctly. Um, and, and, and he has nothing to go on other than Jesus just said he's, he's living now. 
Well, his servants meet him when he's on the way and he finds out that the very hour that Jesus said that, his son got well. And now he really believes. Now, think about what this tells you about Jesus. What does this show you about Jesus? Lord of the distance. Yes. What does he keep saying? What, what, what phrase keeps getting repeated? Your son lives. Your son lives. What does that tell you about Jesus? He gives life. He gives life. Which goes right back to the theme that we, we're sort of developing here. Jesus is the, the Lord over death and life. And he gives life. Okay. Comments or questions on chapter 4? Daniel. Yeah, exactly. Good point. Salt? This official, probably before he left his house, he told everyone, I'm going to go see Jesus to help this boy. So the servants were so excited that they came down to meet him and say, hey, let's see if that thing worked, that this Jesus thing worked. They came all the way back, met him halfway, to say, yeah, it worked, your son's better. You know, it's like, they, they knew the story, so they, were, they wanted to know if it was Jesus or not. And besides that, he was at the point of death, and now he's well. Yeah. That's awesome. So you Ben? Well, I think perhaps even the statement helps him to come to a better faith. And Jesus isn't necessarily indicting him specifically. This is an exclamation over the gist of this. When he distinguishes himself from the others, Jesus is willing to heal his son. That's what I would say. 